victorious. What does it mean to be victorious? To win, right? I mean, of course, right? To be victorious means to win, but win what? Do you win a prize, a medal, money, reputation? This time of year, there's lots of pictures on social media of athletes winning medals in track and field events. There's pictures of graduates victorious in getting their diploma and celebrating that they have conquered four or five or however long it took to get through their course of study. But does victory always mean that we're the best? or that we conquer at the expense of someone else? Is that always what victory means? In our text today, we're reminded that while God's people are victorious in Christ, our victory comes through humble repentance and service. Let's read Luke twenty-two forty-seven through 71. This is a longer passage this morning, so hang in there. I won't be going through verse by verse, so you can... Uh, be rest assured that uh, the sermon won't take as long as it will t- to read. No, just kidding. Um, so we're in Luke 22, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, that's Jesus. He was speaking to his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. There came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to, Jer- Ju- he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw him and saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple you did not lay hands on me but this is your hour and the power of darkness then they seized him and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together Peter sat down among them Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. 
When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would live in light of your very word. Live in light of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his powerful and precious name. Amen. So last week, we were in Luke chapter 24 at the end of Luke's gospel, verses 50 through 53, and we saw Jesus' ascension. And before ascending to heaven, Jesus tells his disciples then and now that we are witnesses to these things. And we ask the question, how are we witnesses to these things? These things meaning the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. What is the means, the posture, the way we live as witnesses? What does the reality of Jesus' ascension mean for how we live as witnesses? And we saw that because Jesus is the ascended king, we live as servants of the king. And like I said, our text this morning, even though it comes before Jesus' death and resurrection, fits well with this text that we were in from last week. It fits because we have Jesus himself in our text twice in the, uh, in, in the, in the uh, events taking place refer to himself as the Son of Man, which points us back to the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is referencing a being from God, giving power, dominion, and the very authority of God. A vision of the ascended and reigning Jesus. In our text, Jesus says this is who he is. He does it twice. He, when he greets Judas, he says... Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then when he's before the Sanhedrin, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so we come to our text today, and this question is before us, who are we in light of who Jesus is? Right, Jesus clearly states who he is. He is this Son of of man, the living, reigning one of all power, glory, dominion, honor on the throne of heaven. Who are we in light of who Jesus is? If Jesus, the suffering servant who is victorious over Satan, sin, and death, is ruling and reigning over all things, who are we, his people? Who are we in light of who Jesus is? 
This morning, our main point is that because Jesus is the Son of Man, His people are forgiven and victorious. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, His people are forgiven and victorious. We're going to look at that term, Son of Man, again, forgiven and victorious. First, Son of Man. We see in our text that Jesus is in full control. Even in his greeting that he gives to Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Would you betray the one given all power, dominion, and authority of God? Right? I mean, Jesus is kind of showing the irony of the situation, right? Like, Judas, would you betray God with a kiss? He is showing that he, in this moment, even as one of his own 12, is preparing or has and is in the process of betraying him. Jesus is proclaiming and declaring who he is and that all that is about to happen is under his authority and power. And what's interesting that we see in in our text is that both Peter and Judas betraying Jesus in the ways that they betray him, Judas coming and turning him over to the chief priests, Jesus coming, or Peter coming and, and denying Jesus three times later in the text, Peter grabbing the sword and cutting off the servant's ear, both Peter and Judas betray Jesus both by attempted violence from the same motive. Neither of them understands. Both hate this cup that Jesus says he must drink, a cup that is representative of God's wrath over their sin and the sin of the world and one that only he may drink. They hate this. They want something different for Jesus and for themselves. And yet Jesus is saying to them, how can there be anything different? I am the son of man. You know, I think it's interesting that as we think about this text, and especially in light of last week and the ascension of Jesus and what does it mean that Jesus ascended and living on the throne We talked a little about this last week, but as the church, we often want to wield the sword instead of yielding our lives, right? We don't want to serve our enemy. I mean, notice that Jesus, even in the midst of his being betrayed, is serving his earthly enemy by restoring the ear of the servant, We don't want to pick up our cross daily and follow in the way of Jesus. Instead, we panic, right? We're just like those disciples in the garden. We're just like Peter in the courtyard. We panic. And take matters into our own hands. We fight to avoid the path of suffering that God has laid out for those who follow Jesus. 
And as I mentioned last week, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus sits on the throne. He is victorious. He rules over all things, and he's coming again with the sword of justice. Yes. That is absolutely true. That is who Jesus is now, what he does, and who he will be when he returns. But brothers and sisters, that is not the work of his bride, the church. We don't wield a sword of steel. We wield the sword of his word. We don't rule over the world. We serve the world in his name. We don't judge the world. We love the world, even when the world doesn't love us in return. Even when the world doesn't understand who we are. We have trouble, I think, believing Jesus when he says in John 16, while in the garden on that same night, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We, the church, are to live like Jesus in humble service until he comes again. And as we live like Jesus, we live in the victory of Jesus, awaiting our victory when he comes again. You see the difference there? We live in the victory of Jesus now, awaiting our victory when he comes again. And that mercy and compassion is the essence of Jesus' ministry. It comes through in Luke over and over again that this is the way that he is calling his bride, the church, to live out the ministry of the ascended Son of Man. Right, Luke points out that he healed the servant, as I mentioned. Only Luke records this healing of the servant's ear. And Jesus' actions here are consistent with what we see throughout the Gospel of Luke. That the Creator came to his creation as a man to bring about a new creation. From the beginning, Jesus came to release all creation from the bondage of its fallenness. And now at the moment of his arrest and the coming of the power of darkness, Jesus again shows compassion even to his enemies. This is the gospel that Jesus preaches, that his disciples are always included in this demonstration of the good news, right? It is word and deed and healing. Jesus shows that those who are held in bondage by sickness, sin, or Satan are released just as they are released from the bonds of sin by the hope of the gospel. Jesus at this moment is reminding his disciples then and us now that even in the midst of our enemies, we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate you. Jesus is in such complete control of the situation that he takes one last opportunity to teach us and his disciples then through his own actions on how to be Come merciful just as your Father is merciful. 
You see, Jesus, even in this moment, even as the Son of Man, the one that he is declaring has control over all things and nothing is happening out of his purview, is reminding us and his disciples then of the way that he's been calling his bride, the church, to live in this world as his disciples. We also see in our text in verses 54 through 62 that this idea of forgiveness, that his people are forgiven and victorious because Jesus is the Son of Man is not only who he is that gives us an identity, but it is because we are forgiven. Now, you might be looking at this text going, wait a second, where is forgiveness in our text today? 54 through 62, that's Peter in the courtyard denying Jesus. Much of the preaching that you may have heard or the writing about Peter's denials are often focused on Peter's failure, are often focused on the relationship that it has with our failures as disciples of Jesus, how we deny Jesus in various ways. And while it's certainly important for us to understand that we do deny Jesus in various forms, in various ways, in various situations, to be reminded that Peter was one who would deny Jesus as well was not always the rock, but was often a slimy pebble. (laughs) The compassion and forgiveness of Jesus is often overlooked in this passage. You see... We often spend so much time focusing on the failure of Peter that we forget to look to the power and compassion and love of Jesus. Right? We all fail, we know our failures. And it is good to be reminded that we are those who will stumble and fall and that we will deny, but even greater and better is to be reminded that we are forgiven by a compassionate and loving Savior. You see, in our text, when Peter meets the eyes of Jesus, look, it wasn't in the crowing of the rooster that that Peter remembered Jesus' words. Do you see that in the text? Immediately as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It was in the look that Peter received from Jesus. Peter's bitter tears are an expression of his heartfelt sorrow that he has 
so quickly rejected Jesus. He remembers the word Jesus spoke and begins the process of repentance. Bitter tears of remorse precede his restoration to faith. And Peter's restoration begins right here. Jesus held captive leads Peter to repentance without saying anything else. For Peter had already heard the word of the Lord. How often have you looked at this text and saw the look that Jesus gave Peter as Jesus' utter disappointment and disdain? I have. I've come to this text over and over again. And when you see that image of Jesus looking at Peter, my heart says, Jesus was looking on Peter. He looks on me with disdain, with disappointment. That's not the look of our Savior. That is not the eyes of Jesus upon his beloved. You see, the fact that Jesus finds Peter, right? I mean, Jesus, however he did it, orchestrated it just at the right time that he could be in the right place when Peter denied him the third time that Jesus could look at him. and captivate Peter's attention. And in that look, Peter knew his own disappointment in himself, but the forgiveness and compassion of his Savior. Because that's the only thing that would drive Peter later on to come back to Jesus. The compassion and forgiveness of his Savior. In Jesus' look, it recalls the theme throughout the Gospel of Luke of the lost being found. The look of Jesus holds the promise of forgiveness, which will reach its fulfillment when Jesus appears to Peter later. When Jesus earlier had promised to pray for Peter, Jesus knew this was going to happen. That's why we should not look at it as Jesus' utter disappointment, his utter disdain for Peter. Jesus knew that this was going to happen and had promised to pray for Peter that his faith would not fail when he failed. And when Peter and the eyes of Jesus meet. He remembers the word of the Lord. He remembers what Jesus had promised. It's the same for us. As the hearer of the gospel, we know that the word is true and effectual, calling sinners to repentance and also absolving us of our sin. 
The word accomplishes conversion and growth. And the whole purpose of Luke's gospel is captured in this scene. When repentant Peter is absolved and restored, he'll be able to fulfill the second part of Jesus' prophetic instruction, right? I will pray for you, Peter, so that your faith does not fail and that when you will turn and strengthen your brothers, right? Jesus prophesied that not only would Peter fail, but he'd be restored and part of his restoration would be to encourage and strengthen his brothers, Peter, the repentant sinner, forgiven by the risen Christ, will assume the role of leadership and reminding all of God's people of all Jesus said and did on the day of Pentecost. So the Son of Man brings forgiveness, also brings victory, brings victory verses 63 through 71. We'll go through this quickly. Luke's trial scene here in our text focuses on one issue, one issue alone, Christology. Who is Jesus? This is the key question for Luke's gospel. It's the key question for us. Not only does it answer the question, who are you, when Jesus is asked, it answers the question of who are you to those of us who are followers of Jesus. The claim here that Jesus makes, it's not a, it's not a crime to, to claim to be the Messiah, though it might not be smart to claim that, but what Jesus is doing here is he is claiming to be God, the Son of Man. From now on, he says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, it is Jesus who will occupy the throne of heaven who will occupy the throne of judgment. He is the one who holds all authority and holds all the power. And the Sanhedrin knows exactly what he is claiming. As I previously said, we, the church, are to live like Jesus in humble service until he comes again. As we live like Jesus, we live in the victory of Jesus, awaiting our victory when he comes again. As the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation, reminds us, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. So with a vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. That is our hope, our promise, and the victory of Christ And Jesus says that is from now on, from his death and resurrection until he comes again. The time of the New Testament church when the victory of Christ is realized in the life of the church. Not in our own victory, but in the victory of Jesus. Right? The church now lives in light of this victory of Jesus until he comes again. And so the ascended and reigning Jesus as our victorious king is calling us to imitate him, not in his victory, but because of his victory, living in his victory as his servants, living as servants of the king, living as servants for our neighbors. And so we live as victorious servants of the king 
in our families, as I said last week, both biological and our church family, in our work, in our schools, in our friendships, in our communities, in all spheres and places of life, we live as servants who know and live in light of the victory of the one true king. The strength, hope, love, and peace that is needed to live in this way is not in ourselves, not in our own victory, but in the victory of Jesus. He is the one who is victorious. He is the one who has conquered. And we have the hope of the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, to look forward with expectant hope. Because Jesus is the son of man, his people are forgiven and victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the victorious one. And Lord, we thank you that we live in light of his victory, that we are forgiven. Lord, that we are called children of the Most High God. You've called us to live and to serve as those who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus have been forgiven and are victorious because of the victory of Jesus. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.